Please open your Bibles to John chapter 9. If needed, Bibles are available under the seat in front of you. Now hear the word of the Lord from John 9, verses 1 through 41. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. 
One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Last week, I had a, friend, a Catholic friend come and worship God with us here, and he really enjoyed it. But one of the things, the first things he noticed is, man, it's long. And I said, yep, it's long, but we enjoy it. If you listen, if you're watching a good football game and it goes into overtime, do you complain, right? If you're watching a good baseball game and it goes into extra innings, do you complain, right? Well, I need some extra innings today, okay? That's all I'm saying is I need some extra innings. It's 1030 and I'm just getting up here, all right? Here we are. John chapter nine is where we're going. Now, we are currently studying the gospel of John. If you don't know, at this church, we just work our way through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. That's called expository preaching. And we're currently in the Gospel of John. Now, John is an eyewitness account from one of Jesus's closest, most beloved disciples. His whole goal in writing the book was to tell the true story of Jesus of Nazareth, who changed his life, and he wanted to tell that to other people so their lives could be changed by Jesus as well. Now, John has already told us that Jesus is life and that Jesus is light. He wants all of us, and as a pastor, I want all of us as well, to have a life that is filled with abundant life and light. And that's the kind of life that Jesus will offer us 
if we hear him, if we see him, if we wake up to him and put our faith in him. Well, today we've come to John chapter 9, and I'm going to attempt to get through the whole chapter in about half the time of my normal sermons because of the wonderful baptisms that we got to participate in. So let me pray that God, God can multiply loaves and fishes. Can he also shrink my sermon? I don't know. <laughs> Let's see if he can do it this morning, okay? Father God, I pray for you. I pray to you right now. We as your children, we come to our heavenly father and we ask your blessing. We thank you for the work. You know, we don't always see the wind moving, but we see the effects of the wind. We don't always see you moving, but we see the effects of you moving in the lives of these people that were baptized this morning. And we thank you for it. Now, God, we come before your word. Your word is life. Your word is light. Your word is the most important thing in this world right now because it can bring the dead to life. And so I ask this morning that your word would do that. You would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me this morning, that your sheep would hear your voice. Those sitting in darkness would see a great light. Father, we also want to continue to pray for Isla. We thank you for the strength that you've given her to continue to this fight this battle. We ask that you would completely heal her, completely heal her heart, and drive that cancer far from her body. And we would give you all the glory, praise, and honor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully you've learned this by now, if you've been with us for any amount of time. But in the gospel and in Jesus' life, Jesus is always playing 3D chess. He's always doing more than meets the eye. Now, we've already seen this when he miraculously multiplies bread and he feeds 5,000 people. He's doing a lot of things in that moment. He wasn't just showing off. He was, of course, proving that he is God. He was also meeting the physical needs of his listeners by feeding them lunch. But he was also doing something much deeper. He's telling them that he is the only one who can feed them spiritually. To be fed spiritually means to have your deepest needs met. Your spiritual needs are the desires that are in the deepest part of you, but more than likely you don't actually spend too much time thinking about them or putting your finger on them. That you, because you're made in the image of God, you have a desire for eternal life. Not just living forever somewhere, that's part of it, but also an abundant type of life here and now. You desire to be loved unconditionally forever. That your desire to know that, that you are good and that you are living your life in the right way. That you have a desire to be a part of a family that makes a positive difference in this world and lives on after you die and after you are forgotten. You have a desire to know your creator, to commune with him and to see his glory. These are some of your deepest spiritual desires. You have a desire for significance, a desire for meaning, a desire for purpose. God put those in you. And when Jesus says, I will feed you spiritually, he's saying, I'm going to meet those needs in a way that a loaf of bread can't meet. So Jesus begins his ministry and says, yeah, I can do all of those things for you. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just some kind of enlightened guru that's trying to get you on the enlightened path to be one with the universe so good things will happen to you. No, I've come to feed your soul with real spiritual food. Come to me, he says. Well, today we see Jesus doing a similar 3D chess move. 
this time with a man who was born blind. Now, he, of course, is going to meet his physical needs. He walks in blind, and Jesus heals him physically, and he's going to prove once again that he is God, right? But he's doing more than that. He's also going to teach us some important things about life. Namely, he's going to give us insight into really important problems that everyone in this life has to deal with. We all have to come up with solutions to these two problems. Here's the two problems. One, the problem of suffering. Why is there suffering? Why do people get sick? Why are people born blind? Why does this happen? How do I deal with it if it's happening to me? One, the problem of suffering. And two, the greater problem of spiritual blindness. The greater problem of spiritual blindness. First, let's look at the problem of suffering. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. As he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. This guy had a defect from birth. He's been blind as long as he's known it. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, look at this, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, why would Jesus' disciples automatically think that this man's blindness was a direct result of either his parents' sins or his own sins? Well, because they knew part of the story of creation. That in the beginning was God. God created everything good. Sin and brokenness and pain and suffering was not a part of God's original creation. But God puts Adam and Eve in a perfect garden and they, with the, the free will that they've been given, why would God give them free will if he knew that they were going to sin? How, can God, how could God create something that he wanted to choose to love him back without giving them a free will? He could have created robots that did exactly everything he wanted them to do, but you can't really be loved by a robot. So God gave them free will. They could choose to obey him. They could choose to love him. They could choose to rebel from him. God told them what would happen if they did rebel. They said, eh, maybe not. Right? Maybe that won't happen. Well, was something really bad happened? I don't know. And so they tested and see if God was really serious about it. Well, they sinned against God, right? Now, you can say this. I know it's a poetic way. They ate from, you know, we think of them eating from an apple. It's such a simple thing. But let me just put it in our vernacular. They gave God the middle finger. All right, that's what they did. When God said, I will, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. You're never going to die. Here's the tree of life. Eat from it as often as you want. You can go to the mountains. You can go in the sea. There's only one thing you can't do. And it could have been anything. It could have been don't touch this house. Right? It could have been stay off the carpet. Right? It could have been anything. They have one rule and they choose with one rule. It wouldn't life be much simpler if we had one rule. Right? With the one rule, they chose to give their one response to it, which was one finger, okay? The wrong one lifted up to the God of the universe, which in effect is cosmic treason. The highest being in all of, all of existence. If God stopped speaking, we would stop existing. The world would stop existing, 
right? That one being, you give that guy the middle finger, right? God should have just taken off the middle finger right there in the moment just to show him his power, right? But he already told them what he was going to do and he was going to curse them and that's exactly what happened. They were cursed, their relationship was cursed, animosity, fear, shame, guilt, all of this entered into the human experience, pain, roses started to bear thorns, suffering entered into the human existence, okay? So what this means, here, here, in, in regard to our text today, is that all suffering, in a general sense, is caused by sin. All suffering is a result from Adam's sin in the garden, okay? He was our representative head. He was our president of the human race, as it will. So his sin is imputed to all of us. We are all guilty because he's, we sinned in Adam. Also, personal sin brings real consequences into a person's life, right? So you reap what you sow, Proverbs says, if you, have enough, if you have an affair with another man's wife, you better expect that man to come looking for you. And if that man takes you out, that was a direct consequence of your own sin. So here it is. Two principles that these men knew. In a general sense, all suffering is a result from sin. But, and this is really important, all suffering in a specific sense is not necessarily a result from a specific sin. Jesus tells us that clearly here in verse 3, when he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now we need to hear that, right? Everything that bad that happens to you is not a result of your own sin. It's not because you did something wrong. And sometimes when we go through life, bad things happen to us. And many times we think, what did I do to deserve this? You might not have done anything to deserve it. Blame it on Adam. Right? You can give him a kick in the shins when you get to heaven. Right? Thanks, bro. Everybody's going to give him shade when they go there like, hmm. Put him on the backside of heaven. All right? Want him the farthest mansion from me. Okay? Right? So that's why the disciples ask this. Who caused this sin? His parents or his own? And Jesus says, neither. In this case, now listen, I want you to, first off, I want to hear this. Karma is demonic. Karma is demonic. Karma says to a child born blind, you must have did something in your past life to deserve this. We joke and we laugh and something good happens to us. Must have been karma. I paid for somebody's latte. Look what happened to me. Karma is a bad word and I won't say in church, okay? Karma is demonic that offers no real explanation of the evil and the suffering that's in this world. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Karma's not real. Sometimes bad things just happen to quote unquote good people. Now many people ask here, well, if God is good, why do bad things happen to people like this guy who was born blind and it wasn't his fault and it wasn't his parents' fault? Why does that happen? They, they, sometimes they say, is God the one who created evil? How could God be good if he allows evil into his creation? 
Now, there's a lot of answers to those questions, but let me just give you one with a qualifier at the beginning. Here's the qualifier. If you were as wise as God, if you were all-knowing like him, if you could see everything all at the same time, everything in eternity past, everything in eternity future, if you could see in the hearts of men, then you would understand. Since you're not, you won't. You'll never be able to fully answer those questions and wrap your finite mind around an infinitely wise God. God has reasons you know nothing about. So that's my qualifier, but I'm not going to skip it and just move on. I'm actually going to try to answer it from one perspective. And it's this. God is an author. He is a storyteller. All of history is his story. Creation is his grand narrative. And listen, I have never heard anyone say Shakespeare is a bad author because he writes suicide into his plays. I've never heard anybody critique Tolkien. Don't do it in my presence. I've never heard him say he's a bad author because he writes Sauron into his books. The author has reasons for it that the reader might not ever understand. Now, if you do read the story, which you should, see, Sam, this little goofy hobbit, weak, insecure, foolish-looking man, would never have turned into a hero if he didn't have to go through the hero's journey in the face of impossible odds against a villain that was much stronger and more powerful than him. In other words, in order to take a small and insignificant character and turn them and transform them into a virtuous, virtuous, pious, lordly, heroic character, the author has to write in an even greater looking enemy. The only way a little turd of a man becomes a dragon slayer is if there's such thing as dragons. Right? You don't become a dragon slayer just by practicing with your brother in the backyard. Gotcha. No. The protagonist needs the antagonist. Who reads the book with no struggle in it? Who watches a movie with no struggle in it? No battles, no great endeavor, no fear or loss or failure. Who grows when things are easy? Who matures and evolves and develops as a character when things are smooth sailing? You know what you get when things are smooth sailing? You get soft and fat, all right? You know how I know? You know how I know? I read books. I have no idea. You know, I don't know personally, but I know. No, because I look at myself in the mirror, right? I'm over 40, and I'm like, stuff used to jiggle. It didn't used to jiggle like that, right? As you get comfortable, you get soft. This kind of answers the greatest questions we ask when we are in the midst of suffering. We ask the question, why me? Did I do something wrong? Is this a result of my sin or my parents' sin? Well, Jesus says, maybe, but maybe not, right? If you've, if you've reaped, right, sin, and you've done something, you've had an affair, you've, you've stolen something, you might be reaping the consequences of that. But if you've not, if you're living a righteous life, if you're following Jesus, if you've confessed your sins, you've repented of your sins, and bad stuff is happening to you, then it might just be a result of the fall. And God is doing, going to do something in you. He's going to do something in you that you don't know anything about. He's making you into something you don't know anything about. 
And the second question we often ask when we're suffering, why God? We first we say, why me? And then we say, why God? Well, it's not because he isn't good. How do we know that? All things must work together for the good of those who are called by God. God has a plan. And if you are suffering physically, you will be healed for sure one day. For sure one day. That's what the new heavens and the new earth and the new body is all about. There is an expiration date on every single ounce of suffering in this world. We're just talking about when does it happen. That's all we're talking about. He can do it right now if he wants to. He can do it on our deathbed if he wants to. He can do it after death if he wants to. All suffering has an expiration date. Your job, if you're suffering right now, is to trust that the author knows what he is doing and suffer well. What does it mean to suffer well? It means understand who you are and what story you're a part of. How many of you like the stories that you're watching? Maybe, I know we, we, many of us don't read anymore. We watch movies. You're watching the movies. Things get dark. The ominous music starts playing. And then the guy on the, in the middle of the battlefield curls up in the fetal position and starts saying, Mommy, Mommy. How many like that guy? How many like that guy? Do you like that guy? Don't be that guy. In suffering, you have the opportunity to choose the character you're becoming. If you're watching it on a screen and you, and you go, oh, I can't stand that guy. My kids are repulsed by people like that. They're like, oh, they have a name for him. They call him Fishback. I'm not going to tell you where it came from, but they're like, oh, don't be a Fishback. And I'm like, yeah, don't be a Fishback, right? We don't want to be the type of people that curl up in the fetal position when we're suffering and either shake our fist at God and say, why God? Or we go, why me, why me, why me? No, no, no. This is a test. This is the hero's journey. This is meant to make you into strong and a strong and a virtuous person. That's what it's here for. God promises to never give us a snake or a serpent if we don't need one. Sometimes we need one. We need the dragon to show up at our front doorstep so we learn how to wield the sword. So if, you, if God has given you a dragon, if God has given you suffering, he's given it to you for a purpose. Too many people, we, we cry about the prophets of old and we wish that there was a George Washington or an Abraham Lincoln or we wish that there was some virtuous person that could show up on the scene. You know who God has written into the story for right now? Us. So who are you going to be? Complaining about the, we don't have these forefathers anymore. We don't have these virtuous men. Become one. Oh man. All right. See, listen. When we're suffering well, God often uses our suffering as a message to the world. Because you know what the world is asking? The world is like the disciples. I know you'll know, know I'm only four verses in and you're getting nervous right now, but it's all right. <laughs> the disciples, you should be nervous. The disciples, hope you pack snacks today, okay? <laughs> That's why we start at 930, because it's not lunchtime till noon, okay? Here's what happens. The disciples are looking at this person and they're saying, why was he born like that? Was it because of his own sin or his parents' sin? In other words, here's what we do. We see a homeless guy on the side of the road. We see a, a person born with a debilitating illness. And many times we, off, we say, why does this happen? But then we also think, what would it, what, how would I respond if I was like that? How would I respond if I was there? See, when you see a person suffering well, 
a person who's not losing their hope in Jesus in the midst of a very dark and difficult situation, when you see a person cling to Jesus in the dark like that, you can look and go, do I have a faith like that? Like, what is keeping them buoyant? Why are they not drowning in their suffering? What's keeping above the waves? Right, Charles Spurgeon famously said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. In other words, I get picked up by the storms of life and thrown, and you know where I land? I always throw, I always land on the rock that is higher than I, Jesus Christ. When we suffer well, in the, we're not complaining, we're not whining. Other people can see that and go, what do they have that I don't have? And the answer, of course, isn't discipline and strength and power and I'm a stoic. No, the answer is I have Jesus Christ and the spirit of the living God living inside me. Okay. Now, Jesus takes this moment and he turns the whole situation into another lesson about the deeper things of life, spiritual things. And once again, Jesus claims to be the light of the entire cosmos. Verse five. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Okay, so many of us, we've grown up with a scientific materialist, materialistic uh, worldview, and we believe that nothing miraculous can happen. Well, I'm sorry, but it can. Uh, God entered the womb, of a, uh, the womb of Mary and became a man and enters among us. And no, I can't walk around and do this, right? There is, Jesus didn't find a, a pile of magic mud and just spit into it and make his little witch's brew and then put it on the man's eyes. No, God, Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And in the beginning, Jesus took dirt and made man from dirt. So you know what he else can do? He can heal man with dirt if he wants to. And so that's exactly what he does. He makes this little bit of spittle, puts it on the guy's eyes. Don't let anybody ever do this to you, by the way. <laughs> this is a one and done situation, right? And the man is healed. But the healing isn't the main point. We know that because that happened in two verses and we still have 40 more verses. So I'm gonna keep going. Verse nine. Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. This can't be the homeless guy. This can't be the dude. And he's like, I was here for a long time. Obviously, you guys didn't look at my face, right? I'm the same man, he says. Keep going. So they said to him, well, then how were your eyes opened? They, he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Here's the deal. When the son of God shows up, it doesn't matter if he asks you to do something you think is ridiculous. The right answer is to go ahead and do it. All right, go ahead and do it. All right, it's a teaching moment. This is your moment on stage. Are you gonna play the part or not? Keep going. They said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. I love it. I don't know, because I was blind when he healed me. <laughs> they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. 
The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day, okay? Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So if you don't know, one of the Ten Commandments is to rest and enjoy the Sabbath and to not work on the Sabbath, okay? These Pharisees apparently saw Jesus healing on the Sabbath and said, he's doing work. They want to do one of these to Jesus. So the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Now think about this. Think about this. This man has been blind his whole life. This other man named Jesus, who I don't really like very much, has healed this man's sight. And this man is before you, and you're, you're worried, but what day did it happen? Here's what we're going to see. The Pharisees are spiritually blind. That's what this is all about. The Pharisees claim to see, but they don't see, right? If someone comes to you, and they were in a wheelchair, and they get healed, and they get up out of that wheelchair, and you go, but what time did it happen? Clearly, it can't be from God. He only works six days a week. And he takes the day off every week. If God actually took a day off, so would all, all of we, okay? And I mean, we would not exist for one day of the week, okay? He continues to work all the time. Here we go. Look at this, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, well, he's a prophet. It's the top of the food chain. It's not, all this guy knows, like he's the prophet. The Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. So parents are bringing corroborating evidence. They're the first witnesses put on the stand here and they go, that's our son, he was born blind. We know it, right? Verse 21, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. So this guy's at least, let's just say 18, 20 something years old, okay? So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Second instance of spiritual blindness. The son of God shows up on the scene, heals a blind man, and you call that guy a sinner. That guy? You call him a sinner. Clearly they don't see who Jesus is. Clearly they have something blocking their perception. Something blinding their eyes to know who Jesus actually is. Verse 25. He answered, well, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Listen to this. When any theological egghead wants to come up to you and question your salvation, this is one way you can respond. 
I don't really know about that, but I know he's forgiven my sins. I know I was going towards darkness and going towards death, and he saved me. I don't really know about quarks and evolution and all of this stuff going on. But what I do know is Jesus is the light of the world, and he saved me. And guess what? No one can argue with that. And here's the funny thing about our generation, right? A hundred years ago, people wouldn't let that slide. They want physical evidence, right? But now somebody is expected to come up to you and say, well, I feel like I'm this. And we're supposed to accept that as universal truth. Hmm. Okay, well, I feel like Jesus saved me. That's what this guy says. I don't know if he's a sinner. I don't know all this, what day it was, why it matters, why it's such a big deal. I don't really think he's a sinner. This is what I know. I couldn't see, and now I can. All right, here we go. 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you this already and you will not listen. And I love it. They get a little sarcastic. Why do you want to hear it again? You want to be one of his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. You don't know where he comes from because he comes from heaven. Verse 30, the man answered, why, this is amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Now many people go back and listen to the the, the Bible and they think, oh, that's just a bunch of people that didn't have the scientific method. That's just a bunch of people that weren't enlightened. They thought that kind of stuff happened. No, they didn't. This verse writes this, this has never happened before. And it's happening now. Why? Because God has put on flesh and dwelled among us. This isn't once, oh yeah, that guy was born blind, but uh, yeah, my uncle did the same thing at the family reunion last week. It happens every week around here. No. It's a once in a lifetime thing. Once in a, you know, world creating thing. All right? 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him. This is where they get personal. It's called an ad hominem attack. We can't deal with the information. We can't do with the logical reasoning that this guy is providing. So we're going to attack the man instead of the argument. He says this, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out, right? This is playground antics right here. Well, you're stupid. (laughs) My eyes have never worked and now they do. And that guy healed me. Well, you're dumb. (laughs) Oh, okay. Go with that. See how it plays out. All right. 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So what they do, listen, they cast him out of the temple. Okay. They cast him out. They can no, he can no longer work as a, or worship as a part of the Jewish community anymore. They don't like that Jesus has changed him. So now they've ostracized him and excommunicated him. And having found him, he said, so Jesus goes searching for this man. Do you believe in the son of man? That's Jesus' favorite term for his, himself and the Messiah. It's an Old Testament term. And this man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? In other words, the guy that healed me, what do you want me to believe? Because nobody else can do this. 
Jesus said to him, verse 37, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. See, here's what's going on. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you see Jesus and you really come to know Jesus and you love Jesus as the son of God and as your savior, his light lights up your life and it enables you to see the rest of life with new clarity. It's absolutely beautiful. But if you refuse to see Jesus, if you reject Jesus, if you say, I don't want to believe in you, not enough evidence, I don't really care, you're stupid. If you say any of those things, then the light of the world does not stop being the light of the world. All that the light of the world does is blind you to your own blindness. It's like staring into the sun. Right? What happens if you do that for five minutes without your parents saying, well, stop doing that. I just want to see if it works. Like, it works. Well, burn your retinas and you'll be blind the rest of your life. Don't do it. These religious people are showing us a problem, here it is, that is much greater than physical suffering. This problem is greater than physical suffering. And it's the greater problem of spiritual blindness. How do we know that they're spiritually blind? They think they're right and the son of God is a sinner. I'm going to tell you this right here. This is the greatest problem for a human being. If I could put one word on it, it's called pride. I think I'm right, I think I'm good, and I'm willing to look at Jesus and scoff and laugh and rebuke and say, what? And what, this, what Jesus is illustrating is the pride in the human heart that says, I'm good, I don't need a savior, I'm fine. The pride in the human heart is a form of spiritual blindness. And hear this. The darkest form of spiritual blindness is to be blind to your own blindness. To not know you're blind. To claim that you can see everything perfectly. We know that you're a sinner. We follow Moses. I don't even know who you are. He's the son of God who's greater than Moses. To be blind to your own blindness. To be unaware that you're blind. To assume that you can see when you really can't. That's what spiritual blindness is. It's the sense that you're good. You're fine. So many people in our society today live their lives this way. Guess what? If you push away from God, if you push away from scripture, if you push away from Jesus, you can get to the place where you feel comfortable in your sin. Oh, I'm going to throw off the shackles of religion. I'm going to deconstruct my faith. I don't want to feel bad about all the stuff that I'm doing in the darkness of my heart anymore. You can get to that place. The devil wants you to get to that place. The devil will give you all the peace and the prosperity and the happiness and the riches that you want if it'll get you to the place of being blind to your own blindness. I don't need God anymore. I'm beyond that. I'm happy with myself. I meet so many people that say something like this. If there is a God, I just hope that he's looking down on me and knows that I just did the best that I could and he's gonna let me into heaven when I die. He's not. 
That's a form of spiritual blindness that gives Jesus the middle finger and says, I didn't need you to live for me. I didn't need you to die for me. I'll do it on my own. God, I hope you like me. I did it pretty good, right? Hope my life was a little bit good enough. It's not. If your life could have been good enough, Christ wouldn't have had to come. Christ wouldn't have had to die. Christ wouldn't have had to been resurrected to give you the white robes of spiritual righteousness. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Ding, 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 we have a winner. (laughs) Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, If you can see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you can see that you are a sinner in need of a holy God, then you will be willing and able to admit your guilt before God, to confess your sins to God and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you admit your sins before a holy God, you get the grace of God that covers your sins. But here it is. If you can't see If you are still spiritually blind, then you will not admit your guilt before God. You can do this a million different ways. You can say, I'm good, I'm good enough. No, I don't believe in God. No, I don't believe in sin. No, I'm an agnostic. We're just gonna find out on the last day. There's all kind of ways that you can do that. But basically what happens is you will think of yourself as better than most. That you aren't that bad. That you don't need the grace of God. And Jesus says to this type of person, Your guilt remains on you. See that? That's the last verse. We see your guilt remains. There's guilt. You are guilty for your sins. Whether you acknowledge it or not, it's true. The only way to get get it off of you is to see it and to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now listen. There are many people in this room right now who are still spiritually blind. You do not know God. You do not know Jesus Christ in a life-giving way. And if you were to die today, you would stand before the judgment seat of God and the guilt would be remaining on you and you would be found guilty. And what would happen is you would die the second death and you would go to eternal separation from God in hell. I know that's scary. Look, real life is scary. Suffering is scary. Judgment is scary if you are spiritually blind. But Jesus offers us solutions to both of these problems. The problem of suffering and the problem of judgment. Look in verse 35 through 38. I'm closing. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. Jesus comes looking for the spiritually blind and the physically blind, the suffering and those who are afraid of judgment. Jesus comes looking for you. That's why you're here this morning. He found him and he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus wants belief. Jesus wants faith. He said, Lord, I believe. Now look at this. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. 
He wants you to believe. It starts with belief. But a life of faith looks like a life of worship. That's what it looks like. Your faith practice in a moment is belief. Your faith practice day after day after day, that's worship. That's the solution to both problems. Faith and worship. If you're suffering, you say, I don't fully know why bad things still happen to good people. But I do know that Jesus was the best man to have ever lived. He was the sinless son of God and something very, very bad still happened to him. He was betrayed and crucified for sins that he did not commit and God had reasons that we knew nothing about. Jesus was condemned for us so that we could be forgiven and set free from the penalty of our sins. Jesus was the perfect man who endured great suffering for us. That's how much he loves us. He's willing to go through the cross, go through death to save us from our sins. Secondly, I want you to think how intensely, if you're afraid of the judgment of God, I want you to think how intensely God wants you to see Jesus as the light of the world. Listen to this. Look how far the author was willing to go. He didn't write, just write a story with a bad guy in it and write some hero in it. He wrote a story and then entered the story himself. He took on the greatest enemy. He took on death and hell and he beat it. He conquered. He rose victoriously. Christ our victor. On the cross, the light of the world was snuffed out and yet even death, even the darkness of hell could not beat Jesus. Can you see that this morning? Can you see the glory? Can you see the beauty? Can you see the wisdom? Are you looking? Are your eyes open? You Maybe you came in spiritually blind, but I pray today you would walk out spiritually seeing. God wrote this story and entered this story so that you could be healed from your spiritual blindness. I pray that you could see, you could believe, and you could worship Jesus because of that this morning. Let me pray for us. Father God, Light is comforting, but it can also be blinding. Jesus, we confess that you are the light of the world. Many of us have rejected you, and we head off into darkness. Our culture, by and large, has rejected you and heads off into darkness and chaos. We, this morning, confess Jesus is the light of the world. We confess our sins. We put our faith in Christ, and we ask him to light up our life. Give us the eternal life that you promised, Jesus. Pray that every single person that puts their faith in you this morning, you would light them up today. And God, all the Christians in this room, we get to partake of the Lord's Supper, a second sacrament. We get to welcome 15 people who have never taken the Lord's Supper with us before. We get to welcome them to the table this morning. We get to eat with our brothers and sisters who testify to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Savior of the world. He is the light of the world. And so, we confess that to you this morning and I pray over these elements. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this bread which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. 
We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our savior. We ask you to enable us to drink it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. Jesus, would you minister, minister to us through your body and your blood through this table this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.